Well, thanks again, Jerry, for letting me have this opportunity, and thanks you guys for coming and being willing to uh, check out a, a topic or a discussion with somebody you don't know, and that's a lot of faith, so I appreciate, you know, your effort. So the, uh, the truth of the matter is, is uh, preparing for this discussion was completely sobering and humbling, and uh, I don't want to come across in any way like I have a lot of answers. Um, I'm, a, I'm on a journey of faith just like everybody here. So I've had a fortune of spending a few hours to prepare. So uh, my heart is to just really encourage everybody along in their faith, along in their journey with Christ. And, um, and so if that's achieved in any way tonight, then God's been glorified. So can, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness in our life. Thank you for bringing us to this point, and uh, Lord, we're just, uh, we want to draw near to you right now. We are grateful for a church that would provide opportunities like this to, uh, to dedicate, and so Lord, we come to you by faith, believing that you're a good God who likes to reward those who seek you, and yet we're desperate to hear from you, like thirsty deers and headmans who look to their mistress. We're desperate for you, Lord God, so we uh, look forward to your blessings, and we treat this time as a time of celebration because we're going to have fun being with you and learning about you. Amen. So I have a, an outline on one side and a worksheet on the other, and we'll go through those things. And uh, obviously we're talking about the theology of God, and the direction I'd like to go tonight is uh, sort of marrying the discussion last week with Revelation, and then the next discussion is going to be on the doctrine of man, being image bearers. And I wanted to present theology proper in that, sandwiched in that way, so that we're not just making this an academic exercise, there's a purpose for all this with God's plan. So we're going to uh, begin with some, looking at some errant views, and some, we call them heresies, of what the Trinity is. We're going to then look, briefly look at some scriptures that defend the deity of Christ and can argue against those heresies. We're going to take a brief look at the orthodox view of the Trinity and the oneness of God, the three in oneness. And then we're going to use special revelation as an example of how a God with one substance and three persons works in real time through the Bible. And we're going to then look at uh, two attributes, one incommunicable and one communicable. We're going to define those separately, and then we're going to look at them relative to one another. And like I said, I hope by this discussion, we're encouraged in our faith with God, and we're also able to take a, a genuine look at ourselves and uh, appreciate the relationship that we have with Him. So, the, uh, the, over the centuries and whatnot, the this, the the uh, tendencies to when we study the Trinity is to go in one of two directions. We can, uh, on my head, we can uh, obliterate the differentiations in the Trinity, and we end up with a, an argument for unity or monotheism. Or we can accentuate the distinctions in the differentiations of the Trinity, and what we end up with is an inferior substance. There's four examples of this errant view or heretical view. One is adoptionism. Another is modalism. 
a third is Arianism, and a fourth is subordinationism. And we just want to briefly go through there, through these, and if you want to get your Bibles and open up to Hebrews 1, we're also going to use that text to defend the deity of Christ after we look at these briefly. Adoptionism states that Jesus' divinity lies in a special relationship with, between, with God the Father and Jesus beginning at his baptism. Jesus was below God, but he was above humans. The Lagos in John 1 was considered to be one with the Father, but Lagos was not a distinct person. The Lagos was thought to exist in God as reason exists in man. This impersonal power then came upon Jesus, the man Jesus, at his baptism. Prior to Jesus' baptism, he was wholly human. And as a reward for his exceptional moral virtue, Jesus was adopted as God's son and empowered by the Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, through which he subsequently performed his miracles. And in this sense, Jesus was deified. Jesus was divine by virtue of a received power. And because it was believed that, that God could not suffer, the Lagos flew back to God the Father just before Christ died on the cross. Modalism states that God exists in three different modes. One God who comes in three different modes, or masks. And the mode is, is, uh, is the, is, that is manifest depends upon the need upon the hour. This view denies the real distinctions of the persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not stand for real distinctions, but are simply different names and di for different times. Arianism states that God the Son was at one point created by God, and before that time, God the Son did not exist, nor did the Holy Spirit, but only the Father. Though the Son is a heavenly being who existed before the rest of creation and who is far greater than all of creation, he is still not equal to the Father. Jesus like the Father. Jesus is like the Father, but he is not of the same nature or substance as the Father. Jesus was the first created being. He becomes an agent of creation. He rules, but does so as a created being, greatly exalted, but nonetheless created. The power of God worked in Jesus. And then subordinationism. This is a slightly different than Arianism, Whereas Arianism held that the Son was created and was not divine, subordination held that the Son was eternal and divine, but still not equal in substance to the Father. Thus the Son was subordinate or inferior in substance to God the Father. So as we read through those, we should have our red flags should have been going up, and the main theme to all these errant views or heretical views is an attack on the deity of Christ. And so to edify ourselves and to speak with perhaps unbelievers who might be holding on to these views, there are some very significant scriptures that can be used to defend the deity of Christ. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians, the seven I am's in the Gospel of John are very important scriptures to use to defend the deity of Christ. I want to look at John 1, 1 briefly. Verse states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sorry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those three clauses, I just want to look at briefly. Of course, in the beginning was the Word. 
This idea of beginning just actually means there really was no beginning. Before, before everything was, Lagos was there. So, for instance, we would work backwards through history, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment Age, the Renaissance, the Bronze Age. And if you're talking to an a unbeliever and a, an evolutionist, going all the way back to the cosmological point of singularity, all the way back there, and then you begin counting to infinity. And when you get to there, Lagos existed. So what John is doing is he's establishing the eternality of Lagos, the eternality of Christ. And eternality is a huge deal because ultimately there is only one being who's eternal, and that is God. So John, the writer, is arguing for the eternality of Lagos. And now once we've established the eternality of Lagos, well now in the Jewish mind, to the Jewish reader, now we have two gods. Because I thought God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the one and only God. What's this Lagos being God? So John advances his argument. And the word was with God. And here John is indicating or intimating plurality within the Godhead. So now we have this, this new idea coming across to the Jewish reader. That there's a plurality in the Godhead. And one of the persons of the Godhead is Lagos, the word, the Messiah. And then the third clause is the word was God. Here John blatantly just says, Lagos, the word and God are one substance. And that's the basic definition of the Trinity. One substance, three persons. In Hebrews, we have a series of verses that defend the deity of Christ. In verse 3, Hebrews 1.3, the Son has a radiance of God's glory and an exact representation of his being. So here again, the writer of Hebrews is establishing similar identical substances, the exact representation of his being. Lagos, the Son of God, in this, count, in this context, is the same being as God. And since the, the, uh, the argument has been defined as the Son of God and God the Father having the same substance, he then advances in verse 5 and says, God identifies himself as the Father of the one whom he here calls Son. And again, we're indicating plurality within a similar Godhead, within one Godhead. Hebrews 1.8 is a quote from Psalm 45.6 as to address the Son of God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of our brightness. And again, he's establishing the eternality component of God. God is the only being who's eternal. Everybody else, everything else is after God. Hebrews 1.10, the Son is addressed as Lord. So here we have exclusivity and supremacy. And then Hebrews, finish, Hebrews finishes with the quote from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And in this context, it's God said to the Son, sit at my right hand. So let's just take a brief moment and work through an orthodox presentation of the Trinity, the three in oneness. Millard, according to Millard Erickson, the attributes of God are inseparable from his being or his essence. The attributes of God are his nature, not a collection of fragmentary parts or in addition to his essence. God's attributes are essential and inherent dimensions of his very nature. Therefore, God is love. God is holiness. God is power, etc., etc. Attributes are permanent, inseparable, and intrinsic qualities which cannot be gained or lost. In this sense, holiness is not an attribute of Adam. 
but it is of God. This is huge because God is and does not grow. He is holiness, grace, and mercy. God is these things perfectly and has always been eternally past and eternally future. We're the ones who grow and change in these characteristics. The attributes of God are those qualities that constitute what He is, the very characteristics of His nature. And we're not speaking about His acts, creator, guiding, and preserving. We're not talking about His roles as creator, guide, or preserver. We're talking about His substance, His characteristics. The attributes of God are qualities that the entire Godhead share equally. And that's huge, too. The Holy Spirit, God the Son, and the Father, they share all these qualities equally. One is not superior in substance or essence to another person of the Trinity. So the point here is that the attribute is not separate from the substance. The substance is the attribute. And the attribute is the nature of God. A technical definition might sound something like this. Three in one, the one Godhead exists simultaneously in three personal beings. The Godhead exists undivided in divided persons. There is an identity of nature in the three persons. The Godhead, the Godhead shares the same substance and essence, but what differentiates them is their roles. While the three members of the Trinity can be distinguished numerically as persons, they are indistinguishable and inseparable in their essence or substance or being. And for an example, with revelation, special revelation, general revelation, we see unity, an identical substance in the Godhead. Revelation originates with the Father, it proceeds through the Son, and it's completed in the Holy Spirit. It's not three revelations. It's one revelation in which all three persons are involved. Whew. That's a lot. But, you know, the blessing for us and is that studying the Trinity is not all cerebral and academic. God is knowable. And it does take some effort. We're to love God with all, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there is some effort required to learn this God that we love, who has blessed us. And it's important because, you know, we're, not, we're tired of uh, man-made constructs and paradigms that fail us. We need truth. You know, we all have struggles and trials in our life. And when those waves come upon us, we need a rock. And it's important that we know, we know to some degree of solitude who we are following and who's, you know, working through us and in us. So it is, it is helpful to take some time and read some guys who know a lot, like Millard Erickson and Grudem. And it will really bless you, you know, learning about the, the substance and attributes. And... If we want to back up, the study of the nature of God needs to include the names that God has chosen for himself. A very relational way to learn who God is is to look at the names that he chose for himself. It's very vital. I want to look at three scriptures, Exodus 3, Exodus 20, and Deuteronomy 6. These are very famous scriptures, the burning bush in Exodus 3, the Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, and then the Shema, the Hebrew song in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. God also said to Moses, Say this to my people, The Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Exodus 20. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And of course, these Exodus passages are the initial moments when God introduced himself to his people. And the names that he chose to do to introduce himself are extremely important for learning about who God is and what his nature is like. Yahweh, of course, is the one that's always translated with the capital letters. This is the Holy Covenant name. But it's Elohim in these sections that is the fascinating name in the pair. When God selected this name, or when God introduced himself, he chose the plural form. Elohim is a plural word. And he used this name to indicate plurality and intimacy within the Godhead. But in addition to the plurality component, this name Elohim was also used to address kings as a plural form of majesty. It's a name for majesty. So read through these verses again and notice the frequency of the pairing, Yahweh, Elohim. Exclusivity, majesty. Exclusivity, majestic. Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim. And, you know, here's an encouraging attempt for encouragement here in the study of the Trinity. Remember, the event in Exodus 3 at the burning bush happened in Moses' life before he wrote the account of Genesis and their creation. I know Exodus comes after Genesis, but in Moses' life, he is at the burning bush before he finishes his walk of faith and writes the account of Genesis 1. So, and that's, of course, the first verse is, In the beginning, Elohim created. So do you think Moses had a chance to experience Elohim before God led him to record the events of creation? How about the burning bush? How about the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke? How about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God entering the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement? How about seeing God's train? And how about the 40 years tending sheep in the wilderness? So by the time that Moses sat down to write Genesis 1, he knew exactly what he meant when he said Elohim created. You see, Moses had come to know or come to love Elohim for those experiences, not because of those experiences. He, he fell in love with the God of those experiences, not because of those experiences. And, and for us as well, we don't need another supernatural event in our lives, like a burning bush to know Elohim. The burning bush had already occurred. We have the record in the Bible. But the God of the burning bush is available to us today. And if you'd like to take a look at your worksheet, we're going to work through this example of special revelation as how the Trinity works as one substance in three persons. The God of the, mirac the miracles and the spectacular is available for us today. 
And Moses had the burning bush and all those fantastic things. We have special revelation. And the God of special revelation is available to us to know and honor and love as well, just like he was for Moses. As we look at the totality of Scripture, we can see three in oneness equally sharing, equally expressing revelation. In each of the three major sections of the Bible, a separate person of the Trinity has preeminence, yet without diminishing the nature of the other two persons. We can see the wonderful inter-Trinitarian relationship as well as the transformative relationship between God and man. During each major time, God asserts himself as supreme. And then as he reveals and progresses his eschatological plan, he requires a response. He roots out sin. God also directs attention onto another person or work of the Trinity that has occurred or has already occurred or will occur. And this is not modalism. This is one God, three different roles, working in Revelation. Let's just briefly work through this worksheet together. You have the Old Testament theocracy, you have the gospel narrative, and you have the church age. In the Old Testament theocracy, God the Father has preeminence. We know this to be true because when Christ was ministering on earth, he kept referring to the Father's will, doing the work of the Father, I and the Father are one. And the Pharisees immediately associated that he was speaking about the God of the Old Testament and accused him of blasphemy. So we say God the Father in the Old Testament theocracy. God the Son is working in the gospel narrative. And the Holy Spirit is working in the church age. God asserts himself as supreme in Exodus 3 and Exodus 20. Christ is asserted as supreme, particularly at his baptism, when God speaks and the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. He speaks about himself being God in the seven I Ams. And the Holy Spirit is asserted as supreme in the account of Ananias and Sapphira. You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. God requires a response. He roots out sin. He does so in the Old Testament theocracy during the Exodus account, the ten plagues, the wilderness journey, and Achan. Christ roots out sin by casting out demons, healing the sick, and raising the dead. He's virtually, literally actually, reversing the curse and control that sin has had on the world. And Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead. God prophesied the Messiah coming. He prophesied the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. A heart of flesh and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Christ directs attention to the Father in John 5 and the Comforter who will come in John 14 and 16 after he departs. And the Holy Spirit does the same thing by continuing in the work of the Holy of the Christ, he doesn't introduce a new work, he continues Christ's work and fulfills the work of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3 that God had prophesied back in the Old Testament. God's presence also advances through the scriptures. In the Old Testament theocracy, God's presence is experienced on selectively anointed individuals. God's presence in Christ's ministry is experienced as he dwells among his people. And then in the church age, God's presence is experienced in our hearts. And I wanted to portray that progression. That's very important for my point here. And that is the God of the spectacular miracles and wondrous events of the Old Testament as he was revealing himself is also available for us as we understand how he works in his special revelation. 
the work of the Holy Spirit in the church age expands upon the provision of the cross, which was designed by a loving, providential, and sovereign Father. God the Father decides, God the Son provides, and the Holy Spirit guides. By taking a look at the totality of Scripture, we can gain a true understanding that God is a person, and He is personal. He is an individual being with intellect, emotion, self-consciousness, and will. He is capable of feeling, choosing, and having reciprocal relationships with other personal and social beings. Every person desires to be a part of something greater than him or herself. Yet ideas and ideologies and causes are not the same as a personal being. Our relationship with God is altogether different than any other association or identity. Let's take two other meaty, weighty alternative worldviews for just a brief second. In Hegel's metaphysics, that German philosopher guy, reality as a whole is one great thinking mind and all of what most people consider to be finite objects and persons are simply thoughts of the absolute. There's no personal being and there's no personality to which we can adhere to or we can grow to, grow with. Hinduism, reality is the whole of which we are individual parts. One does not relate to reality by turning outward as to an individual, but rather by withdrawing inward through contemplation. The goal of this process is to lose one's own individual identity and self-consciousness, to be, in effect, absorbed into the whole. Nirvana is that stage at which all individual striving ceases and one becomes simply at rest. Do these worldviews sound like Psalm 139 or Psalm 22? For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. You can't get any more intimate and personal than those verses. This is the God of the Trinity. This is the one that we love because of all the wonderful things he has done for us. We were in a faraway land and he has brought us home. And the scriptures are full of verses that speak to this personal, loving being. So God is obviously a personal being, and a true understanding of God is indicated in scripture in three, three primary ways. He has a name, he, he acts, God is active, and God desires to be known. God has a name. The I Am in Exodus 3 demonstrates that God is not an abstract, unknowable being, or nameless force. In the Hebrew culture, a name was selected very carefully with significance. The name was the embodiment of the person who was going to have it or bear it. God's name was not only a way to describe him or refer to him, it is him. Yahweh Elohim is God. And it is also how we can address him. God is active. From the earliest pages of the Bible, God is seen knowing and communing with his people. In Genesis 3, God comes to commune with Adam. And it's in this passage that we see that God is personable. God is seen knowing, feeling, willing, and acting. And third, God desires to be known. Scripture is God's self-revelation. The Bible is not a defense argument for the existence of God. God's self-existence and his self-disclosure are assumed in Scripture. 
The Bible begins with the assertion, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He selectively chose what he wanted to reveal so that he could be known. And God's mission is to be known throughout the entire world. We see this in the Garden of Eden when he told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. His desire was that Adam's offspring would be known throughout the entire world. We see it again in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15, that God desires the peoples of every nation to know him. A true understanding of God can be known, and for great reason. We have tremendous hope in the fact that, in, in Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 3, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. God's passion, his purpose, and intent is to be known so that we can enjoy a deep and abiding relationship with him. J.I. Packard in Knowing God reminds us that if you want to be useful in our day, if you want to have a great energy for God, have great thoughts about God, and display great boldness for God, if we are to have a great contentment in God, we must know God in all of his glory and splendor. We must become God-centered. Because, our, because God is a person, our relationship with him has a dimension of warmth and understanding. God is not a bureau. He's not a department. He's not a computer that dispenses needs. But he is one, and he's not one to only receive what we offer either. He is living. He is a living and reciprocating being. He's not merely one whom we hear about, but one whom we know and trust. God is the end in himself and not a means to an end. He is a value to us for who he is in himself, not merely for what he does. The rationale from Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me, comes from the preceding verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. We misread this text if we conclude that they were to love God for what he did, that out of gratitude they were to make him their only God. Rather, what he had done was proof of who he is. It is because of who he is that he is loved and served, not only supremely, but exclusively. And as we come to, to know God and discover more about him, we recognize that there's two major categories of attributes. We have communicable and we have incommunicable. The communicable attributes are those qualities of God for which at least a partial counterpart can be found in people. Love, while infinite in God, is in partial form in us. Incommunicable attributes are those unique qualities for which no counterpart can be found in people. For example, omnipresence. God is everywhere simultaneously. I want to look at one incommunicable attribute and one communicable attribute I want to define them separately and then look at them in relationship with each other. The incommunicable attribute we're going to look at tonight is the independence of God. And that has two components, self-sufficiency and self-existence. Self-sufficiency is God possesses all powers intrinsically. He has all capacities in and of himself. He is always infinitely wise and able to discern what is best for anything and everything. The power of God is his intrinsically. He has all things necessary for every task. 
He does not need us to help him with anything, even though he may choose to use us. He possesses every quality within himself intrinsically, and he does so without limit. He is, of, he is in and of himself sufficient for all things. Whatever God chooses to do, whatever he envisions, he is sufficient in and of himself. And we see an example of this in Psalm 50, where Israel is on trial, and God is acting as the judge and prosecuting attorney. And the writer starts off with God accusing or stating to Israel what they're guilty of. They were bringing sacrifices to God with the same mindset as their pagan neighbors, trying to appease a needy God. Errant theology teaches that God created us because he is lonely and needed fellowship. I am here to supply something for God. This is transferred into Christian service and mission. It's taught that God wants a certain people group to believe, but he can't do it without you. Will you go? This is not just wrong, it's blasphemous. It turns the God-creator relationship on its head, stating that I supply something that God needs. That's not self-sufficiency. Could God be God without the world? We have to say yes, because God is, God is eternal and the world is not. He is the same God before and after creation. Why are we here? And why does God demand so much from us, such as take up your cross and follow me? He wants my whole life. His demands are absolutely comprehensive, every moment, every penny, and every relationship. I believe we'll attempt to answer that question as we look at the second attribute in the communicable category. The second component of self-existence is, the second component of independence is God's self-existence. God has existence within himself. It is his nature to exist. God is not caused to exist, as is everything else. Everything else owes its existence to something else, either directly or indirectly. But God is necessary. We are contingent. God cannot not exist. In John 5.26 we read, The Father has life in himself and has so granted the Son also to have life in himself. The I am in Exodus 3 gives the notion of the being of God. This term means more than eternality or, ex or, or existence, but it does not mean less. The very point of Genesis 1 is that God was already there in the beginning. He has no beginning. God's existence is necessary and non-contingent. This is different than eternality with relationship to time. John Frame in The Doctrine of God has stated, God is self-attesting and self-justifying. He not only ex exists without receiving existence from anything else, but also gains his knowledge only from himself, his nature and his plan, and serves as his own criterion for truth. His righteousness is self-justifying. It is based on the righteousness of his own nature and on his status as an ultimate criterion for rightness. God is by nature self-existent. In Romans 11.36 we read, For from him and through him is glory forever. How important is this? Self-existence and self-sufficiency. How important is this to the God that you worship compared to all the other false gods, the human constructs and paradigms? 
In all traditions of thought, I'm going to go through a postmodern theme here. I want you to compare God's self-existence and self-sufficiency to a postmodern culture. Ideally, all, let me start over again. In all traditions of thought, secular as well as religious, there has been a search for something self-existent. An ultimate cause of being. An ultimate standard of truth. An ultimate justification of right. Could this reality serve as a redemptive window into our own culture today? What do we hear a lot of today? Everything happens for a reason. How about the need to get closure? Ideally, the metaphysical absolute, the epistemological and ethical norms should all be grounded in one being. But non-Christian thought has found it impossible to locate all of these ultimates into a single principle. Part of the problem is that non-Christian thought has determined that its absolute being is an impersonal being or idea. But impersonal beings cannot, cannot love. They cannot serve as a norm for knowledge, ethics, and metaphysics. And this is the tragic part. This is our culture today right here. So many non-Christians have given up on the quest for an absolute, preferring to embrace meaninglessness and chaos. The non-Christian substitutes for God have failed, just like the idols in Psalm 50. Only the God of Scripture can give unity and meaning to human thought and existence. That's self-sufficiency and self-existence. I think that's very important with learning about God, the God that we love and we appreciate so much for what he's done in our lives. And as created beings, we do have some attributes that we share in common with God. And the, the communicable attributes are broken down into three categories. Intellectual attributes, moral attributes, rulership attributes. Some examples of intellectual attributes include omniscience. God is all-knowing, yet we also have the capacity for knowledge. God is all-wise, and yet we also have a capacity to grow in wisdom. And God is divine truthfulness, and he expects us to be truth-tellers. Rulership attributes include freedom, and that can briefly be ex- 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 uh, defined as God will act freely according to the, his characteristics and his nature. He's not going to build huge rocks that he can't pick up. Omnipotence. God is all-powerful, and yet we're given the opportunity as his image bearers to experience power over sin. Genesis, Peter, and Revelation talk about a kingdom of priests or kingly priesthood. I believe that part of being a redeemed follower of Christ, I'm given the privilege of being a ruler in life and not being ruled by life. And there's an there's a element of submission and faith involved, waiting and trusting God to bring fruit and bring a, me to an understanding of that in all the areas of my life. But I'm not to be overwhelmed and overcome by the trials of this world and, and other major concerns. I believe God is going to bring me through at some point. And of course, sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things, and we're capable of governing ourselves and creating laws and such things to image him in that capacity. The third category is moral attributes, God's goodness, God's holiness, and his love. And I would just like to briefly go through this communicable attribute of love, which in God is infinite and in us is in partial form. The Bible has two words that it uses for love. The one is the Hebrew, the hesed love. This is the Old Testament word for loving kindness or mercy. God's hesed love 
is his loyal commitment to bring favor, blessing, kindness, and well-being to others. There's two sides to this meeting, his loyal commitment and his goodness. So why did God keep bringing Israel back? Nothing commended his favor to them. And how about in Abraham's disobedience? The answer is found in God's Hesed love, his loyal commitment, and his goodness. And of course, the New Testament uses the word agape. Agape love is an in spite of love, not a because of love. God loves us in spite of our rebellion. And as we look at the communicable attributes, we do need to exercise a bit of balance. It's easy to so overemphasize one side that we diminish the other side. For example, we can so overemphasize justice and judgment, we forget about forgiveness and mercy. A good example of this would be to contrast Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon with a sinner in the hands of an angry God, or a modern-day Robert Schuller or Joel Osteen sermon that would so overemphasize God's love that there's no concern for judgment. We could do the same thing with, uh, with God's unchangeableness, his immutability. God doesn't change as an incommunicable attribute, but we also have a communicable attribute of emotions. How do we balance those together? How do we look at those together? And, of course, we took independence and love. And I'd just like to wrap up here with looking at those in relationship to one another. Is it not true for God to love unconditionally? He must be self-sufficient. Why would this need to be? Suppose he did have intrinsic needs. Then he would not love unconditionally. God does not love us because he is self-sufficient. God's love is not causal. He is able to love us unconditionally because he is self-sufficient. It gets back to that Exodus 20 passage. The purpose of not having any other gods before them and the, and the reason that God rescued them and wanted their commitment. They weren't to love him because of what he did for them. He, he, he did wonderful things for them because of who he is. God revealed himself in so many spectacular ways to Moses. And Moses did not fall in love and follow God because of those events. He fell in love with the God of those events. And that's how we can look at these two attributes together, God's independence and his love. So why are we here? We asked that question earlier. If God does not need us, why are we here? What's the whole point? Though he is self-sufficient, though he needs nothing and is infinitely rich in himself, Yet he desires to share his bounty with us. This is getting back to the Hesed love, the agape love. God's purpose with us is not to get from us what he needs, but rather to shower upon us what we need. His purpose is to fulfill our lives, to fill our emptiness. I exist as a child of God to be loved by God. Our reason for being is so that we could be loved by him. My number one purpose for existing is to be loved by God. Only as we are loved by Him, my folly can be replaced with His wisdom. My weakness can be made strong in His strength. Only then can I experience the fullness of God. So as we think through that discussion, compare that to the false religions of this world. When we go to minister to our unbelievers, I know the South Tampa a community group has a ministry to women who have had it really rough. 
How would that message come across to those women? The understanding of God's self-sufficiency, his self-existence, yet he desires to love them, not to get something from them. They've been beaten up with that idea their whole life. But rather God is killing himself literally to love on people. So I just have one rhetorical question. When we talk about God's love, we talk about love of God. Is that the love that exists within God? Or is it our love for God? And I use small g's because it's easier to write. (laughs) Lazy. I'm lazy. Love of God. We see that in the scripture. Love of God. Does that mean the love of God that exists within his being, his substance? Or does it mean our love for God? Well, the answer is yes. It's both. Because in 1 John we read, we love because he first loved us. So I hope there was something in that discussion that helped you and edified you against the wiles of the enemy. And you'll be able to you know, feel enriched in your walk. Not all the time are the wiles of the enemy big and bold and scary. Sometimes they're subtle. And the subtle, the subtle arrows of the enemy are going to erode who God is, what his nature is. They're going to chip away at that, that substance, attributes, idea of God. Because if he can do that in your heart, then what's the whole point? He's just another God with a small g. Thank you.